Screen Talk is brought to you by After the Storm. A failed writer finds life has new meaning when he reconnects with his estranged family during a typhoon in After the Storm, the heartwarming new film from Hirokazu Koreeda, the award-winning director of Our Little Sister, Like Father Like Son, and Still Walking. See After the Storm, a critic's pick selection that the Village Voice called indispensable, Screen Daily declared as genuinely funny, The Hollywood Reporter praised as exquisite, and The Huffington Post hailed as both wonderful and endlessly endearing. After the Storm is now playing in New York and Los Angeles, and coming soon to theaters across the country. Welcome to this very special edition of Screen Talk, everyone. I'm Eric Cohn, the Deputy Editor-in-Chief Critic. Still not joined by my colleague Ann Thompson, who's in her post-Oscar vacation mode somewhere south of the border. She'll be back soon enough. In the meantime, I'm really excited to be here at the IndieWire HQ in Austin for the South by Southwest Film Festival with my colleagues Chris O'Fault, our filmmaker toolkit guy, and Ben Travers, our TV critic, which is a great combination of voices because South by Southwest is just you know, a collision of all these different things. People don't really realize, I think, from the outside how much stuff there is at South By, even if you're just talking about film, which you never are at South By because it's all about media convergence. But from a film perspective, we've got movies, but we also have panels and keynote conversations and a million different brand activation things, and then there's the TV stuff. So we're going to dig into all of those things, but just... In a, in a broader sense, I think we should we should start out by just talking a little bit about you know what seems to be changing in this environment. We've all been here before. I've been coming here since 2007, and it's really struck me as fascinating to see you know the way in which the film landscape has changed uh, is reflected in, in the festival not really giving a place to the movies in the way that it used to. Which isn't to say that they aren't there and they aren't valued, but it, it seems like there's a lot of extra noise. And Chris, you've been on the panel beat for us more than anyone else. Maybe you could kick us off and talk a little bit about what, what exactly is, it, is, it, is the role of movies in an environment like this relative to the other kinds of things that are happening here. You know, what's interesting is, is that uh, South by Southwest is all about innovation. And on the film side, I think that is always a lot of the heart of the digital uh, do-it-yourself movement was here. You know, this is where a lot of those first uh, DSLR movies, and, you know, the Swanbergs and the and the and the Duplasses and Lee we can Dunn. call them mumblecore. <laughs> it's a shorthand, even though I hate the term. You're the one that edits that out of our pieces. It's a love hate. Uh, it's a love hate thing. But I mean, I, I think, and also this idea of how digital technology can be used um, to to do something different. And so on the panel front, that still is very, you know, Gareth Edwards, uh, Rogue One director, basically gave an hour long panel today about how he created his own career through digital media and how, you know, this is like an amazing time for him. Now, he's directing Rogue One and Godzilla, and he, but he, he draws his roots back to this, th- this festival. And so that's interesting, but then I don't know, though, that the smaller films that are actually here, how do they fit into the larger landscape? And in some ways, I think it's a little bit like I think VR is an interesting element here. Film is a little bit on the outside of storytelling. Is on a little bit on the outside of VR. It's it's a lot of these technologies are about the other fields. Yeah, it's kind of fascinating to hear you talk about Gareth Edwards because I remember being here when his film Monsters premiered at the festival. It's the biggest sale ever to come out of South by Southwest. Tom Quinn bought it for a million dollars or something like that after its midnight screening, and that was a movie the guy did special effects on his laptop with, and it was a really crucial moment for people taking risks 
on movies where they saw some kind of underexploited market. And one of the things you see here is that those markets kind of come to the foreground, right? Because there's more of a, this like pressure to innovate or to figure out how do smaller movies kind of get into the market. And uh, now I feel like we're seeing that with TV to some degree because there's so much pressure for all festivals to acknowledge TV and Sundance and Toronto and all these different kinds of places seem to be starting to explore it. But episodics at Sundance seems to be something really specific. And, and Ben, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about that because it, it really seems like you know TV, while very much a natural fit for this environment, is not gelling with the films. It doesn't feel like it's just part of the same equation, don't you think? Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely its own thing. Um, the interesting thing to me about the, the TV selections uh, by South by Southwest is that they have started to fall into a pattern uh, in which they have a lot of kind of big, splashy premieres. I mean, they, they kick things off before Episodics even started by having girls here, and that's you know been like a landmark event for South by Southwest. They had Silicon Valley premiere here, and then this year we had big premieres like American Gods. But what they seem to do is there's always six selections in the episodic section, and probably three or four of those are pretty big deal shows that you're aware of and that you're excited to go see. And then there's at least two that are smaller that are, that are being elevated to this bigger plane. And to me, that's kind of trying to blend in with South by Southwest because you have big major films like Baby Driver, uh, like the Alien Covenant screen, like pre-screening 15 minutes or whatever that they did. Um, and then you've got kind of these smaller, more obscure things that people are going to try to discover that might be kind of strange or weird, which fits in with the Austin vibe, um, but deserve a bigger audience. And that's kind of what they're trying to do. Does it feel like you really can discover TV in an environment like this? Because to me, that's what makes a good festival worth checking out, is that you have that balance of the obvious things. Maybe they're good. Certainly they're anticipated. But you, if you don't stumble into something that winds up being great, you kind of lose that sense of what's really being curated here. Well, that's the kind of interesting thing to me about South By and, and a lot of TV at festivals. A lot of them come in with distribution already, so it feels like a marketing play. Yeah. And to me, what's really interesting, and, and like probably my favorite example so far is Dear White People, because that's a Netflix show. It's going to come out on Netflix. Everybody is going to see it because it's on Netflix. But Netflix has so much going on that they're trying different ways to make their shows stand out. And with Dear White People, it played out at the Zack Theater, which is you know further removed from like the core uh, area of South by Southwest. Yeah, it scares it's, off some people. Yeah, it's a little bit harder to get to. When Janet Pearson uh, introduced the the Dear White People screening today, she talked about how like she wanted everybody to go out and tell people to come to the Zach because it's a great theater and you can get here and it's not that hard. Um, and you know, it's a, Dear White People is a big Netflix show. It's based on a movie that did obviously very well in, in the festival circuit, so people were aware of it. Um, and I'd say the screening was probably. 80% full, like it, there were open seats, it, it didn't, they didn't have to turn anybody away, um, but the people who were in there were wrapped throughout, like they were just totally engrossed with this show. I so think I it's feel like ironic they though, I mean, it, yeah, and I mean, it's, I find that kind of fascinating though because it's, on the one hand, it's a great opportunity for a show like that because it's sort of this, this victory lap, Dear White People being a movie that, you know, our site helped kind of get out there, but a lot of people didn't know about for a long time. It sort of gradually became more and more part of the zeitgeist and now is a bigger thing. But people know they can see it on Netflix later. So 
what's the point of going out of your house and buying a ticket to see two episodes of something when you're going to get the whole shebang in a couple of weeks. I feel like that's something that's sort of been percolating here. You know, Netflix has three movies here, including a Joe Swanberg movie, Win It All. And that's like the perfect arena for somebody like Joe. I mean, doing these smaller films, but it also, it really rubs a lot of the film industry here the wrong way because it creates this counter narrative in which festivals are almost incidental to the way most people discover these things. Is it, is it fair to say, because I think what Eric's getting at also is like, you come here for discovery. And it strikes me that the TV is about like getting some of that South by Southwest mojo rubbed on it. Like it's like a marketing thing. But it's see, like, like it's, uh, I don't know if I fully agree with that statement because a lot of South by and a lot of what people end up talking about out of South by isn't necessarily discovery. Like a lot of the big premieres, people were going to see anyway. They're going to go see Baby Driver. They're going to go see. Uh, I mean, a lot of these big movies, mm-hmm. and they're going to watch these TV shows. But what's interesting to me about South by is that something like American Gods is a star show, and Stars is not, you know, the most successful brand out there. It doesn't have kind of the awareness that HBO does, or obviously the, the reach that Netflix does in terms of subscribers. Um, so if you go to see the American Gods premiere, you might be trying to decide whether or not you're going to get the Stars app or subscribe once you get home and it actually comes out, you know, and is available, like the full season's available to you. Um, so I think there's a little bit of discovery that's still built into this, but yeah, there's a lot of marketing at play. I think that's the branding thing too, because this Mr. Robot was here, and right. Mr. Robot is where USA rebranded itself Mr. Robot Network, and I think that, so stars, you're thinking about edgy shows, you're trying, they're trying to step into that cable space, this is the perfect place if you have that type of show. Oh yeah, it's a do. great fit for it, and I, I, I don't, like, I, I don't slight them at all for choosing, or, or getting it in here, however, you know, it worked out. Um, but yeah, it's it's still for the audience, from people who are trying these things out or who are tempted to go see this instead of you know whatever hundreds of other options they have out there. I mean, there's there's a there's a bit of risk involved. I think it's also good to see uh, networks that have a reason to experiment because they're not totally sure what else to do. You know, coming to a place like this because they're well situated in some ways have nothing to lose. You know, it's, it's the, the, not to say that Star's brand is, is that tarnished, but to say that, hey, let's see if maybe we can crack this equation is probably a wise decision. I mean, I was thinking about when you were talking about this whole, uh, you know, kind of the, the challenges of bringing something like American Gods here for a, for a company like Star's. I was thinking about Lifetime with Unreal, which was a short film that was picked up essentially out of this festival and the way in which that kind of ecosystem can actually have a direct impact on the TV landscape in ways that uh, viewers have no idea about, don't care about, will never have a reason to experience, and yet it shows you the degree to which this environment can be very influential. That's what film festivals are about. I mean, a movie like Moonlight being so successful to me was to a large degree the result of people who work within the festival ecosystem. I mean, a Daily Romanski who just won uh, an, an Academy Award for producing Moonlight is back this year with a movie called Gemini from a filmmaker named Aaron Katz. And most people haven't heard of this person, but eventually that could change. And I feel like there is something about festivals being sort of a, an incubator for talent and uh, getting that talent to another stage of recognition requires being aware of the fact that you're not necessarily going to get that recognition here. Right. So there's an interesting kind of a dance that you have to do where the return on investment isn't always right in front of you, but you have to take that risk. So anybody with the capability of taking that risk is better situated 
to benefit from it. Oh, absolutely, and especially on TV when literally half the game right now is just making yourself known, like just breaking out from the pack so that people will try you out. Like they will try your show because there's so many programs to watch and so many options to choose from. People don't have to anymore. They can they can just sit and watch Netflix all day if they want to, but they've everybody else is trying to get noticed. So let's get away from Netflix for a bit and talk about Terrence Malick, everybody's favorite elusive auteur, no longer so elusive apparently because he surfaced on Saturday morning, the second day of the festival, in a conversation with Richard Linkletter and Michael Fassbender, which was amazing after the premiere of Song to Song, which opened the festival. Total inside baseball, Malik porn, basically. <laughs> Ringar and Fassbender and Gosling kind of hanging out at music festivals. I mean, it is what it is, a B-side to the B-side, all these little fragmented moments. If you've seen the trailer, you know what you're in for. But the amazing thing about all this stuff is that for most of the country, Malik is such an enigma, and yet he's able to make these big complicated, very experimental projects. So his elusive nature only adds to the mystery of how he pulls it all off. And yet, now that he's done this panel, it seems like, I don't know, now we can kind of get into the nuts and bolts of this. What, the, what is it that Malik is doing? How does he get away with all this stuff? Chris, you were in the room with Bigfoot himself. <laughs> how did you even keep your thoughts straight just well, looking at it? Because the thing about it also that needs to be um, this panel uh, was led by uh, Rick Lang uh, Richard Lanklater, who clearly is a friend and, uh, and um, a, a huge admirer of, right. of Malik. Super fan plus friend. And so, like, this thing was focused on process and Linklater's obsession with this process and how these things... So it's not even just talking about these movies in broad terms like you have. This was about, like you know, filming Beatles and chasing the wind and looking at light and kind of the ethereal things that Malik is chasing and this freedom. I mean, that's really what we're talking about with Malik is that, like, you're an actor and you're getting pages and pages the morning of. There's no way you can memorize this, and that's what he wants, and then he's throwing things at you. And so really kind of breaking that down, and it's clear to me uh, and I don't know if Linklater was the one who initiated this and why this happened, but there was this comfort zone because it was a conversation with Rick. But it, it, it's amazing, though, because not only did he come out and speak about it, but he talked, he tried to put uh, words to what he was trying to do. Right, and that's the thing that we've always understood to be what he will never do. Right to actually that the, the work speaks for itself, and yet yeah. the work can't speak for itself because when you see this kind of work, you have so many questions, right? Yeah. And, and I, it's funny because I feel like he, when I read what you covered from this panel, I it basically got everything confirmed. Maybe I'm just too well sourced, but I do feel like when you look at Malik and you read about what he does, a lot of these things are already out there. Why why does he cut these? actors who are big names and you know he said well I just couldn't find the room to do this or that or the other thing and an eight hour cut yeah he was in, maybe he was going to be a miniseries and then it wasn't he actually watching the clips from it he sounds kind of like Linkletter in the sense that they're both kind of these really chilled out guys in which everything is about understatement you know like eh, well I mean you saw the movie I, I just I made it like this because of that you know and that's just the way he rules the one thing that he fessed to that I thought was really interesting is you know the legacy of Malik is he shoots forever you know in the stories of days of heaven the stories of trees of life like months upon months and months and just endless and the one thing that he addressed about this current round of films and he was very clear about this that yeah I had an eight-hour cut but Song to Song was 40 days of shooting, which isn't 
a lot. And he was very clear about the fact that this new way of shooting, this new way he's doing it, has a lot to do with digital technology and just never cutting. Like, if they're going to go drive to some house over in Austin, mm -hmm. they're going to roll cameras and get shots of Fassbender looking out the window. Like, they are constantly going, and it allows him to keep going. And so, just in answer to your question, I think if you can limit stuff to a 40-day shoot, and Ryan Gosling, Fassbender, Kate Blanchett, Rudy Mara <laughs> are going to be in your movie, it's now doable. I don't think what he used to do, those 300-day shoots of, like, in switching DPs and staying forever, I, don't, I think those days are gone. But I think there's something about this modern era, and I think shooting with Chiva Lubinsky uh, is also this other element, is that he's got this partner who's just with him and, and has a spirit of shooting. And, and seems to be enabling him in a way, which I don't even know if it's a good thing, to be honest with you. Ben, I'd like to get your input into this in a second, but one other point about Malik is that a lot of people are frustrated with his movies lately, and I think there is a really specific reason for that, which is that they tend to not care too much about structure, and his earliest movies, something like Days of Heaven or Badlands, these movies had very cogent scripts and performances, clearly defined characters, narrative arc, and even uh, The Thin Red Line did that. It was the first sort of indication of a freer Malick, the fleeting glimpse of George Clooney, you know, telling you just how much he didn't care if you were, you know, an actor on the rise, he could still cut you out. And Jared Leto was in there at some point, too. But the, there's something kind of amazing about the way in which he seems to be receding more and more from the principles of storytelling to the point where it's almost like clip reels. There's something very contemporary about it from a creative standpoint. But at the same time, it feels like the things that we initially saw Malik as a great artist for are no longer there. And Ben, you made a good point on uh, Twitter about the possibility that Song to Song could have been a miniseries and why that doesn't work. And I think that's worth digging into a little bit because to me it's like, it says something really specific about the limitations of the TV arena and the way in which we sort of assume that we have to have a kind of narrative or something. So it has to be a more kind of a comfortable, familiar arena in terms of how people tell stories than, um, than anything Malik seems to be doing right now. It's really an interesting point. Yeah, I mean, I, I basically just said that I'd be very worried about kind of Terrence Malick off the chain because so many filmmakers turn to TV now for just an excuse to not have to cut things short. Like they want to get rid of the editor and let things run as long as they want, which is yeah. dangerous in and of itself. Um, but uh, more to the point that you just made, TV is a is always been known as a writer's medium. So it's always very structured and it always comes down to the narrative and it always comes back to like these kind of elements. And it would be fun to let somebody you know, completely go against that and, and see what they could do with it. But at this point, and I am not, I think the last Malick movie I saw was The Tree of Life, which I loved, but, you know. It's okay, you can stop there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, what, that's what I've heard. So now I'm much more worried about him coming to TV now. Like, I'm much more worried if, if all of a sudden he was just like, well, if I don't want to cut this down from eight hours, I'll just throw it up on TV. Like, well, that doesn't necessarily sound like the best thing for him. Actually, I should back that up for a second. I actually really enjoyed his IMAX 45-minute cut of Voyage of Time, which is a totally different side to him as an artist, a, a, document, a kind of cosmic documentary. But again, there was structure to it, a very mm -hmm. specific running time that was appropriate for it. I also saw the 90-minute version, which was a mess, and 90 minutes felt long for that material. I think the one number that always sticks out with me is Tree of Life came out in 
2011. It was his fifth film. His fifth film in about 40 years. This war movie he's shooting right now will be his fifth film in six years. And I just He's like think, the new Joe Swanberg or something. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's an element God damn it, he is coming to Netflix you know, we then. joked about how long he took between movies, and I don't think we ever appreciated that instinct of his of being free and, and looking for the ethereal but also having structure did it was it was a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And it was a struggle and there were five to eight years. And I just think right now he's seventy three and he's happy shooting this way. And you know what, if Ryan Gosling is going to be in your movie and Chivo's going to shoot it and Broad Green's going to buy it, you know, it, he's just, and it, 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 you see it. These things are like sketches. They're like first drafts. And people like me who love Malik, you see all the little pieces there. But he's just not going to spend seven years welding this thing, like you said, into Tree of Life or, you know, or, you know, I'm a big fan of Days of Heaven and New World. So I just, I think those days are done. Yeah, well, it's, it's an, a good point and also one that brings up how to work within the confines of the system. I mean, Malik is just never going to be a studio director at this stage of his career, which is my kind of cutesy way of transitioning into talking about Edgar Wright, because Baby Driver premiered here, as we alluded to earlier. This is a uh, Sony TriStar movie, but Wright is a great example of somebody who knows exactly how to work within the confines of the system, which is not to say that he hasn't had some bumps on the road, like when he tried to do Ant-Man and that fell apart, but all five of his movies, I think, are really remarkable, original achievements. Even Scott Pilgrim, which was an adaptation, was an incredibly innovative way to bring sort of the video game uh, language into the cinematic form. He's a a really entertaining filmmaker who is able to channel earlier stages of uh, film history and at the same time has a really unique kind of comic style. And Baby Driver is just so much fun. It's it's got this great uh, kind of musicality to it. The way I I described it was Busby Berkeley doing Grand Theft Auto. (laughs) And uh, just the the way in which this movie is able to um, make the heist film into something we've never quite seen before and yet is also very accessible. Suggests to me that this is going to be a commercial movie, but also something that I think is uh, a great indication of uh, how to work within the system, which is you have to have really original ideas, but you also have to know what the system wants from you. You know, Edgar Wright is really smart in that sense, and, and Chris, you went to a conversation with him, which I know you haven't seen the movie, but I think it's worth talking a little bit about that, because even not seeing the movie, Hearing him talk about it, you got excited to see it, which I think gives you some indication of what Wright is capable of doing. I think we all, and based on what people like yourself have been saying, is that this thing is so much fun and so good. And I think we all need to be rooting for this movie to do well on August 11th. And I think it's perfect timing, too, after we've been bored to death with the summer of blockbusters. And I think that's the bigger thing here. Is He even said, I know what a blessing it is to make an original Hollywood summer film. And he said that because this is a blessing, this is a rarity, and I think he didn't reference Ant-Man, but that's clearly what he's talking about. And what's happening in these franchises, we see TV directors, we see new directors, we no longer see these 90s directors who are very, you know, like a De Palma or like these people that are like directing these action scenes. What you have now is your very boring, generic action that's about the bigger spectacle in which it's being handed over into pre-visualization and stunt coordinators and... And what you have in Edgar Wright and he, in, is a director who is, is a lot more like Damien Chazelle 
in terms of, I think the musical number well, is great. He no, was there first. <laughs> no, but I think that, no, but I mean, this idea of an action sequence is being something. Yeah. He took these songs. No, they were Shaun of the Dead had mm-hmm. that great queen sequence, so. He's you know. not cutting the movie to a song. The song is the original. He writes to it. He designs every little element, times every little element, works with a coordinator, works with the, and is using practical stunts is, and is trying to make a visceral experience that's, fun and that's tied to his movie and that has some personality and that has some authorship. Yeah, I mean, it's a really involving movie, and, and I won't spoil too much about that, but it's, even though th- this notion of coming up with a song and an action sequence first is, is great, it doesn't mean that he's just directing, like, a basically feature-length music video. I mean, it's rooted in the emotional journey of a certain character, and surprising, shocking things happen, there's fantasy scenes and a romance and real aspirations. That's what I liked about Shaun of the Dead was when I saw that movie, I remember thinking, what's, what I really love here is that it's hilarious, but it's also a legitimate genre movie. And he had such a clear understanding of these things. Notably, he's also of a different generation than someone like Justin Simeon, who made uh, Dear White People in the sense that now it seems like you make a movie and then TV is available to you. Wright got his start in TV with Space. If you watch Space, I mean, it's a very limited arena in terms of what they were able to do in a good sort of time capsule of sorts relative to, you know, what, what you can do in, in cinema. And I think that contrast is, is, is notable, don't you think? I mean, when you watch something now where a filmmaker goes to TV, it's, it feels like a different kind of process than it used to be. Oh, absolutely. And, and I mean, especially when they're bringing a property that started as a movie and taking it to television, you're always worried about what they're going to do to it and whether or not they're just using the name to gain significance and, and to you know help build a franchise or build the brand, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but yeah, like in terms of, <laughs> in terms of um, Edgar Wright, what, I, what I'd always say was that he, even Spaced felt like each episode was such a very focused individual effort that built to like a larger whole, and him transitioning over to film it feels like he's honoring that every second of the way. Like he's he's more intent on making these things exist on their own. He likes to build arcs within the the single thing that he's working with, whether it's an episode or whether it's an entire film. And that's what I've liked about Dear White People so far through two episodes. They're very specific arcs for specific characters in each episode. And he milks, he puts everything he can into every second of it. And uh, today I went to the Veep panel uh, where they had David Mandel and Julie Louis-Dreyfus talking about why they keep making the show and why they're not thinking about ending it anytime soon. They said the only time they're going to end it is when they feel like they can't do it justice anymore. Like they're not willing or they're unable to take every second and whittle it down into 27 minutes instead of 30. Like they're only going to include the best stuff in there. And like you were saying about Edgar Wright, like he's building this around like point by point by point. He's, he's taking that piece of music and structuring it to it like they've got these ideas where they really want to focus it and that really helps no matter what you're watching if you really want to dial in on what makes it great so that was just a tangent yeah no but it's a a really good point and and it's one that I think it's going to continue to be relevant as we see the film TV kind of a conversation continue. So yeah, you got to have a good idea. You got to yeah. know what you want to do with the medium, as opposed to just being like, "Well, it's about time." And you have to have creative invention. I yeah, think that's absolutely. a yeah. kind of crucial bottom line 
element that we don't talk about enough. You know, what is it that we're actually looking for? What are we responding to? Even if we don't realize it, it's something we haven't seen before, kind of problem solving that is somehow pushing the medium in different directions. So let's close out by talking a little bit about that, about the, the things that caught us off guard as being really strong here, not necessarily things that we knew we were going to be talking about going into the festival, but the discoveries are really crucial to uh, why we remember festivals. You know, in, in my mind, it's almost like yearbooks. You remember, you know, the year of 2008 and Medicine for Melancholy or something like that. And so uh, this year we've got all kinds of different stuff to talk about. I mean, I mentioned Gemini earlier. Chris, what have you got? I had two things that really struck me. Um, one, um, a documentary, uh, I'm Another You, uh, from Nafu Wong, who um, last year made Hooligan Sparrow. Um, shortlisted for the Oscar. Shortlisted for the Oscar. And, uh, you know, I think the premise is that she goes, she, she's new to the country, and she goes down and she meets a, a Florida drifter and learns what it's like to be a street kid, but through the eyes of a, a woman who's coming from, from um, a society of great repression, so this idea of freedom. Yeah. And the film becomes so many different things. It, and, I, you know, what I thought it was going to be at minute 30 was completely different than where it was. And um, it just, it reminds me of also, we're talking about voice in, um, in filmmaking. And these nonfiction filmmakers, there's, there's voice. There's, it's not simply they're capturing reality. And I, it's like one of the more original visions I saw here was, was that one. And one other thing that I mentioned is, is that, it, you know, I went to the Alien Covenant, which obviously is not a discovery. But, you know, Catherine Watterson and Amy Simons is, aren't two people that I had ever thought of as action stars. Oh, yeah. And I mean, they, Amy Simons, you couldn't ask for more inside baseball South by Southwest information about 10 years ago knowing her filmography. I mean, she was great back then, but the idea of her on that level is, is still unthinkable to me. But you know what I realized is that most of the male action stars, I don't think of them, I didn't think of them as being that way either. And it's just this idea of, you know, the, the, the kind of wafy girl from the Paul Thomas Anderson movie is actually... Totally. Why not? She's a great actor. She's a perfect heir to Sigourney, Sigourney Weaver, and and so is the indie girl on Girlfriend Experience. And it just it just reminds you that 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 barrier there is just so silly sometimes. Yeah, yeah. And that is, I I had mixed feelings about Atomic Blonde, but it was great to see a kick-ass action movie with Charlie Theron in which. I mean, it was nice to have this kind of celebratory vibe in the Q&A where people were talking about how, how cool that was. But at the same time, when you watch a movie, you don't think about it, I think, too explicitly as how great to see a female action star. It's not like, that stigma is not there because it just works as a Charlize Theron action movie. And that's, that's just, there's something inherently satisfying about that. And you don't know that experience until you, you just have it. And that, that, can be, that can be really great. So that's a, that's a great discovery. And Ben, you've, you've actually got a good discovery worth singling out on the, on the web series front, which seems like the perfect uh, arena on your beat to, uh, to find something unexpected. Yeah, I was really pleased with I Love Beck and Lucy, which is this um, web series, as you mentioned, digital production from Stage 13, um, created by Rachel Holder, who started off making these kind of two-minute conversation YouTube videos where these characters would talk to each other and then it would, it would kind of build off that. And now she's expanded into about 12 to 14 minute episodes um, that run together telling the story of these two best friends who uh, are roommates, who work at the same school, who are just incredibly close. And the opening scene, uh, one of them puts forth the idea, you know, why do we need romantic love? Why don't people just 
hang out with their best friends and, and be content with the life that they've established that they're happy with. Like, why do they let things get in the way? And of course, she's the one who's not in a serious relationship, so that serious relationship becomes more so and it threatens it. And all of this makes it sound like a fairly familiar premise. We've had this discussion before, but what the show does is it uses its time really well in constructing very specific arcs and, and honing in on very specific details that kind of uh, affect the relationship very slowly as opposed to you know big broad fight scenes or, or you know blow-ups or, or you know dramatic instances because it is a comedy and, and they they know how to work in the comedy to these real elements and these real moments and um, it's just a very charming little show that I think can grow into something great and I, I already have a lot of respect for Holder uh, who, who also directed the series and, and I don't know if there's a lot to it that I'm excited to see continue down the line they showed us about I want to say about an hour and 20 minutes um, She's of basically the total season. A feature length. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it was delightful all the way through uh, with a lot of good thought process. Like it, it makes you think about it because of how well they framed this story, which is what you, know, you kind of always hope to hear. I'll definitely check that out. So all this time, and we didn't even talk about James Franco's The Disaster. <laughs> oh, my God, how did we... That was, like, number one on the list. <laughs> well, but I love this movie. I, I don't even want to start because we've gone on too long, but but that's kind of the great thing about a festival in which there's all these colliding variables, right? The big news, news newsy things, uh, the headline grabbers, they're not necessarily as interesting once you start to dig beneath the surface and you find out how just fragmented it all is. I mean, that really is our world, and, and we're going to keep living it. And, uh, you know, there's a few more days after we record of, of South by Stuff, but uh, I think we'll be spending a lot of time processing all the different highlights, and, and the stories will continue in, in the weeks and months to come, because if, if nothing else, South by is a great sort of window into our current moment. And so as we discover things here, we're also figuring out things that we'll have to be talking about in the weeks to come. Um, so we've got beer to drink and, and tacos to eat and, and parties to get to on 6th Street. But, uh, Does that mean I don't have to submit today, boss? <laughs> I, know, I know you're ahead of schedule, right? So um, Ann Thompson will be back next week, but this has been great having you guys on, and, and we've got to find some excuses to have you back more often. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Hi, Ann.